And then what happened was they were just too trendy. Right. You know, from an individual retail's perspective, there were too many SPACs in the market. It was hard to differentiate between them. You're listening to Bite Sized Business Law, where we discuss big issues in small doses. This podcast is sponsored by the Fordham University School of Law Corporate Law Center, which is run by Fordham Law Professor Richard Squire and me, your host, Amy Martella. Okay, let's get down to business. Okay, welcome back to Bite Size Business Law. Today, we are going to talk about what the heck happened to SPACs. And we are so lucky to have with us Maria Sharon, who will explain it all. Maria is a corporate lawyer who started her career at a renowned Wall Street law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell. She went in-house to CBS, and most recently, she has been part of a SPAC management group. She is the loveliest of humans, and we are so happy to have you here. Welcome, Maria. Thank you, Amy. Amy, first, I'd like to thank you for asking me to be your guest today. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And the rise and fall of SPACs is very interesting from both a legal perspective, and I think it really helps provide a narrative about what has been happening in the capital markets post-pandemic. Two years ago, I didn't even know what a SPAC was, but I got involved in the SPAC world when some of my former colleagues formed a SPAC sponsor group, and they asked me to be part of it. Now, can you tell us what is a SPAC? And I want you to go back to how you got involved in them, but just really quickly for our listeners, what does it even stand for? So a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, and basically a SPAC is a public company. It's also known as a blank check company. A SPAC is formed by a sponsor, which can be a group with industry experience, or it can be formed by a group of investors. And during the recent SPAC craze, even some celebrities became SPAC sponsors. Mm. So the sole objective of a SPAC is to merge with a private company. And it, it was interesting. When I got involved with the SPAC, I didn't quite know what my role would be. But because a SPAC is a public company, we had you know, a board and our board was actually extremely active and we had a robust governance process. So I essentially was acting as the general counsel of the SPAC. And looking back, a lot of the skills that I needed to be the general counsel of the SPAC were things that I I learned through my time at SNC and also at the time that I spent in-house at CBS Corporation in New York City. But it was definitely a role that pushed me out of my comfort zone because... Mm. I'm an executive compensation specialist. This really required me to have a more holistic skill set in advising the SPAC on its day-to-day. Okay. So that's interesting. Now, I, I'm picking up on what you said about how you didn't even really understand what a SPAC was when you got involved. I too will like literally never forget where I was when I learned about SPACs. I was sitting on our back porch, 2020, when we all like weren't allowed to leave our yards. And my husband came bursting out the back door and was like, I need to tell you about SPACs. (laughs) I mean, he was so excited. Some young lawyer at his firm had actually explained it to him. And this young, hopeful, you know, associate was like, this is going to be the best thing since sliced bread. And honestly, it, it sounded really great. So can you explain to our listeners, why were they so attractive when they first came on the scene? It's interesting because SPACs have always been around, but- Hmm. You and I had never heard of them. And right. Obviously, we've been in this space for a long time, and they tended to be viewed very negatively. Starting in 2020, SPAC popularity took off and SPACs became very trendy. 
In 2020, SPACs raised around $83.4 billion. And in wow. 2021, which was the height of the SPAC frenzy, SPACs raised about $162 billion. Hmm. I think it's interesting because at that time, we were coming out of the pandemic and the markets were very volatile. Investors, including retail investors, were looking for areas to put their money to work. Mm-hmm. And companies that were looking to gain access to the capital markets through a traditional IPO were having a really tough time. Traditional IPOs were becoming increasingly tough to launch because of pricing and valuation concerns in the market environment. And a lot of IPOs around that time got derailed at the last minute. Hmm. So SPACs provided a solution to that. They provided a quicker path forward than a traditional IPO, shaving several months off of the process. A DSPAC merger has more certainty of execution than a traditional IPO. Wait, so what's a DSPAC merger? So let's go back to the SPAC process. Okay. So... The sole objective of a SPAC is to merge with a private company. Once the merger is complete, the SPAC's ticker symbol and name is changed to that of the operating company usually. And that merger is referred to as a DSPAC transaction. Oh, okay. Because you're no longer a SPAC. Now you are that company that you assumed. Yeah. So you are now an operating company and you're trading as a public company. And SPACs have a limited time. It's usually called a term within which to complete the DSPAC transaction. So you're asking people to invest in the SPAC and the SPAC doesn't even know yet which company it will purchase or merge with. That's exactly right. An investor who buys into a SPAC does not know what the SPAC will ultimately become following the DSPAC merger. So how do you know enough? How do you get enough information to know whether to invest? So the IPO prospectus usually provides an industry or asset class that the SPAC sponsor will focus on. Okay. So a SPAC investment is speculative in that you don't know what you're going to ultimately become a shareholder of. But SPAC investors have an opportunity to redeem their investment through redeeming their shares and taking back their capital in connection with the DSPAC shareholder approval process. So once the acquisition target is known, the SPAC goes out to its shareholders, asks for permission to do the deal. In connection with asking permission, shareholders have the opportunity to redeem and pull back their investment. So they can say, yes, I'm excited about this, go ahead. Or they can say, no, I'm going to cash out. I'm not, I don't want to be part of the merger. Right. And from that perspective, truly an investor has the opportunity once the DSPAC acquisition target is identified to pull out and get their money back. And their money, by the way, is safeguarded into a trust. Hmm. So all the SPAC proceeds are put into a trust, which ultimately becomes the capital of the operating company following a DSPAC. But the trust proceeds are sitting there collecting interest. So essentially, your investment is protected up until that time of the DSPAC. And as we spoke about, if you want to pull it out at the time of the DSPAC, you can. So from an investor's perspective, it would seem that this is really... Great. It's great. This is like... So safe, foolproof. And this is what I don't understand. They seem so promising. They give you so much potential. So the best thing is the SPAC merges with a great company. They take it public. They make great returns. And like the worst thing that could happen is at the point of merger, you pull out and you get your money back. Right. So why did they grind to a halt? I think what happened was 
the combination of several factors. The DSPAC companies, so those are the companies that are merged with a SPAC, now listing on an exchange, became the victim of the general downturn in the markets generally, and but they seem to be hit particularly hard. So hmm. their stock prices kind of dropped off a cliff. Even popular stocks that became public through the SPAC market that were considered success stories got beat up like DraftKings, which is you know a very popular sports betting platform, SoFi, which was a personal finance startup, suffered. Oh, they all came public through SPACs. Yes, and okay. they suffered losses of you know fifty percent or more. Jeez. So really, you know their their stock price just took a complete hit. And then there was a market jet downturn generally. As you were looking at SPACs after a DSPAC transaction, typically in the height of the frenzy, there was a pop in the early days of a newly DSPAC company. And that pop was just subsiding. There wasn't an energy and excitement about these hmm. companies coming to the market anymore. And about 90% of the companies that completed a DSPAC merger during the boom that started in 2020 now trade below the SPAC's initial price. Yikes. So, you know, the SPACs were just a victim of the market. And then it kind of lended itself into this environment where the financing sources for SPACs started dying up. So hmm. typically when a SPAC goes out and looks for a DSPAC target, they will get a pipe financing and the pipe investors started essentially pulling out of the market. Hmm. And then what happened was they were just too trendy. Right. You know, from an individual retail's perspective, there were too many SPACs in the market. It was hard to differentiate between them. Hmm. So it just became a situation where it was just too much. And because of all the SPACs in the market, there wasn't enough supply of private companies to take public. Oh. So, you know, there was this too many SPACs, too few private companies, and it really hurt the SPAC market. And then on top of these very bad like macroeconomic conditions, there was a ton of regulatory scrutiny. Oh yeah, that's what I really want to ask you about is did like the threat of regulation affect the SPAC market at all? I mean, it basically that was the final nail in the coffin for the really? SPAC world in my opinion. So the SEC released proposed regulations in March of 2022 and you know, the SEC was concerned about several things that were happening in the SPAC world about the use of projections, the inherent conflicts related to the incentives for the sponsor group. You know, they wanted more robust disclosure in the SEC filings. And the SEC was also targeting the banks by adding underwriter liability to the DSPAC transaction. And the way that the proposed regs worked, it was not exactly clear what that level of liability would be. And so several of the big banks, the big Wall Street firms that had been very active in the SPAC market pulled out of the market over concerns about this potentially uncapped liability. And the rules really tried to align the SPAC process with a traditional IPO process, thereby undercutting the reason why exactly. you know you would do a SPAC. Defeating anyway. the whole purpose. Yeah. So if a private company is kind of looking to do a, a regular way IPO or a SPAC, and basically the SPAC ends up being the same as doing a regular way IPO, you know, there's some considerations there as to why they might want to do a regular way IPO. So the proposed regs still have not been finalized, mm -hmm. 
but they effectively killed the SPAC market, leaving many SPAC sponsors in a, in a very difficult position. Okay. So now what happens to companies who partnered with a SPAC, but then never made it to the finish line? What happens to SPACs that did take their company, their targets public? What happens now, basically? So a lot of announced deals did die. You know, sometimes the sponsor group pulled out. Hmm. Sometimes the operating company pulled out. Just too much volatility in the market to actually consummate the deal, which was unheard of at the beginning and through the trendy SPAC period. And the companies that did go public through a de-SPAC transaction are now dealing with being a public company in a very challenging environment, trying to keep stock prices stable while dealing with a declining market. In some cases, I suspect that these companies are still trying to get the right public company infrastructure in place and dealing with the growing pains that are associated with that while dealing with you know these larger macroeconomic factors that are hurting stock prices. So this is a, just maybe off topic for a second, but does the SPAC sponsor stay on board as part of the, the private company? So they can if the SPAC sponsor has some sort of industry expertise, members of the SPAC sponsor management team can become board members and help facilitate the company's entry into the public markets, or they can essentially be consultants, coaches. They can become part of the operating team if there's a need for experienced managers. So there's a variety of roles that can be played, but you know, for a purely financial investor, typically once the DSPAC is done, there is no continuing role for members of the of the sponsor group. Okay. Interesting. Now, you've used the word trendy a bunch of times, and that is exactly the word for SPACs. So it makes me think just of the human capacity for hysteria and bandwagoning and FOMO, and you know, it just can never be underestimated. So it just feels like one of those crazes. So in your mind, do you liken SPACs to the dot-com bubble or the crypto craze? How do you feel like they're similar or not? Yeah. I mean, I can see some similarities and some differences. The dot-com and crypto craze were more asset and industry-specific, where you could see a clear market in what was being offered. Oh, that's true. That's true. But the SPACs were targeting companies in all sorts of industries. So you were kind of taking a little bit of a gamble, like we spoke about. If you bought a share of a SPAC stock, you didn't know what you were ultimately going to end up with. And I think... Like the dot-com bubble, one of the similarities is that the popularity of the SPAC investment vehicle just led to such an oversubscription, too many SPACs in the market, not enough targets, and ultimately, it was just unsustainable in the market. It was just oversubscribed. And I feel like we see this again and again, where there's this like fast and wild acceleration in the value of a new asset class. This investment vehicle comes on the market everyone gets excited. You don't ask the right questions sometimes. You don't do the due diligence that you otherwise would have. Like For example, even with crypto, you're basically banking on it, the future profitability of this new asset class. Same thing, I mean, especially with SPACs. You're banking on that it will be profitable in the future. You're not seeing that right now. So it's interesting how these crazes arise and people just, they get on board. And then you know the bubble sometimes inevitably bursts. Yeah. And you know, I think what's so interesting about the SPAC world is because there were like celebrity sponsors and folks who were otherwise 
not necessarily experienced in financial markets, it just generated such a buzz. And, you know, the regular retail investor thought, well, if LeBron is Mm -hmm. heading up this, maybe I should get involved too. And it, it really did kind of create this frenzied pace in the SPAC market. And it just, like I said, with oversubscription, it just becomes unsustainable yeah. at the end. And here's another thing. What are your thoughts on how the economy, particularly a good economy, engenders like this highly speculative instrument like a SPAC? Well, I think that's exactly what happened coming out of the bubble. I mean, coming out of the post-pandemic yeah. period, folks had money, they wanted to spend it somewhere, and it just became a situation where it was attractive and it was trendy to use the word again. And the government had been pumping money into the economy during the pandemic. And it was great until it was great no longer. Yeah. And then in connection with the downturn in the market, and when you were looking at DSPAC company performance and noticing obvious decline in performance, and that was across the board. But for whatever reason, the DSPAC companies got more of the the headline articles about how their performance was bad. And then it just, it was not sustainable. And then obviously when the SEC came with its proposed regs, that was the end. Yeah. So is there any path forward for SPACs? Is there any future for them? I think that given the market performance of the de-SPAC companies and the regulatory hurdles, SPAC activity is really going to be fro frozen for the foreseeable future. The only path forward, and I think it, there's a very low probability of this path, is if the final regulations are scaled down from the SEC. So yeah, so you think the regulations, no matter what, are going to be a big hurdle, a big obstacle to SPAC surviving? Because you know it's interesting. It's all negative, negative, negative news about SPACs, and then you turn the corner. So this morning, actually, I saw the Wall Street Journal reported that SPAC deals are still happening, but they're just really scaled back. So whereas in 2021, they were the average SPAC was worth something like you know, the stat is two billion. Today the average merger value is something like 200 million. So I'm here thinking like, well, maybe they will survive. Like maybe they'll just get smarter and more discerning about the target companies. They'll go for more small and steady companies. But it sounds like what you're saying is like, even if that happens, if they get hammered with regulation, why would anyone go via spec when they can just go via traditional IPO? Yeah. I mean, I think that the deals that are happening right now probably are a product of the SPACs in the market wanting to make a deal happen. Their terms are running out and they're trying to get something through the finish line. I mean, I'm surprised to hear that deals are, are still getting done. The deals that are getting done probably are getting done in a way that is unlike how the SPAC deals were happening at the height of the frenzy. Most likely, there are very high redemptions. Hmm. So that creates problems <clears throat> with you know the certainty of capital and connection with the deal. So yeah, SPAC deals will continue to get done. But ultimately, I think that SPAC IPOs aren't going to be happening. I don't think a lot of people are looking to get into this business right now. And I think that for the SPACs that are out there and looking to find deals, deals will certainly happen, but they are going to have deal terms that are unlike what was happening in the height of the frenzy. And in fact, a lot of the SPACs are actually just 
shutting down, unwinding, realizing that they can't consummate a deal within the allotted term. And there was one estimate that by early 2023, SPAC sponsors are expected to lose about a billion dollars. Because unlike the investors in the SPAC, the SPAC sponsor's investment is not returnable Hmm. if the SPAC unwinds. So there's going to be a big, big loss in the SPAC world for the SPAC sponsors and investors. That's going to hurt. But speaking of the returnability or the redeemability of your investment, I just wanted to get your thoughts because I've been reading so much about this. There's this brilliant Stanford professor, and he actually brought a lawsuit in Delaware Chancery Court basically saying that SPACs are a raw deal for the everyday investor, for the retail investor. That it's like basically, I guess SPACs are traditionally, shares are bought at $10. Right. And he's saying that they're never actually worth $10. They're worth closer to 5 or $6. So they're a massive ripoff. So the vice chancellor, I think it was vice chancellor Lori Will, she asked him, are you saying that it's an industry-wide breach of fiduciary duty? Because that sounds like he's getting to like the very structure of a SPAC is never a good deal for an investor. Because at the moment of the most crucial decision-making moment, which is when the merger is going to be happening, or whereas you said, when they go to the shareholders and say, can we have permission to make the merger? He's arguing that the SPAC is not disclosing to the shareholder the fact that it's really their investment is only 5 or $6 of it is going to be used to purchase the target company. And that that is misleading material information that they should have disclosed, blah, blah, blah. The question is, if that's true, and if the court agrees with him, is this like every SPAC has, is guilty and every SPAC is now going to be on the chopping block? Or, I mean, I feel like, again, he's talking about the very nature of SPACs. And is there anything wrong with that? Well, look, I think the SEC was dealing with this theme in the proposed regs that they released. I don't agree that in essence, every SPAC is worth 5 or $6. I mean, there is a structure to have a $10 stock price with a SPAC, but there's- Costs. There's, yeah. And, and there's costs and, there, and there's finances behind that. And I think that's absolutely untrue that every SPAC deal is worth 5 or $6 per share. But ultimately, what I think that is true is that there is a conflict between the, the SPAC sponsor group and the retail investor in that the SPAC sponsor group can profit even when the retail investor loses money. And I think Because you were saying before that with these failed SPACs, it's the other way around, actually. Right. So but you're saying with a successful SPAC. With a successful SPAC. So the way that the economics typically work in a DSPAC transaction is that the sponsor group will hold about 20% of the operating company following the merger. And Typically, the the sponsor group has paid a lot less per share than an investor in the stock. So Mm. that misalignment can be a cause for concern and is definitely something that the SEC has been focused on, you know, this inherent conflict and making sure that there is very clear disclosure about the economics of the SPAC sponsor group versus that of the investor. But look, I mean, when there's a home run, everybody wins, the sponsor and the investor. And this really allowed for retail investors to get in on an asset class that 
maybe they weren't wouldn't be able to invest in ordinarily because these companies are typically on the smaller side, but although we've seen lots of large SPACs, but you know, not geared up yet for a traditional IPO that are coming to market and you can invest in that. Yeah, explain to our listeners how usually an individual cannot just invest in one of these companies. You have to be like an accredited investor or a venture capitalist. So this was one of the attractive things was just any person could have become, you know, part owner. Right. You know, you can really get in on an early stage of a growth company or some other attractive investment that maybe you wouldn't have been able to get into if that company was trying to do a regular IPO. And so it really opens up a lot of of opportunities for the retail investors to invest side by side with, you know, financial sophisticated financial investors. And on the other side, like the companies themselves would maybe not have been able to exit. They may may not have had the capital or the growth to go public. Obviously, that's the whole point without the SPACs. So yeah, I mean, not so bad after all, maybe. We'll see. No, I mean, we will see. You know, I just, like I said, I think it was just a a confluence of like so many events that kind of hurt the, the SPAC market. But, you know, we'll see where the SEC final regulations shake out. And we'll see what the markets are doing. And, you know, I think that's going to be the best barometer of what's going to happen in the future. Yep. So any thoughts on what the next hot asset class might be? You know, (laughs) I'm a lawyer, so um, not quite sure. I mean, the markets have been extremely unpredictable these days. And I just think things will need to be a little bit more stable before investors will start to latch on to kind of the next new trendy thing. Trendy. All right. Well, this was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for coming and for explaining to us everything we need to know about SPACs. Of course. Happy to do it. All right. Thanks, Maria. Thank you. Thanks to everyone at Fordham Law School, especially the Dean's Office and our corporate law center donors for supporting this podcast. Bite-Sized Business Law is produced by We Edit Podcasts. Listen and subscribe to Bite-Sized Business Law on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. The information in this podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute legal advice, nor is it intended to promote the organizations with which our guests are affiliated. For more information, check out our show notes. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.